morning. We have one case on for argument this morning. It's State v. Stokes. I'm Judge John Airwood. To my right is Judge Toby Hampson. To my left is Judge Fred Gore. I am hacking and coughing, so not to expose anyone else. I'll probably be wearing my mask except for the time that I'm asking questions. Uh, our court personnel, Mr. Saunders and uh, Officer Remillard, uh, I assume the appellant has already talked to them about how much time they'd like to reserve, and that's in. Uh, if there's nothing further, we'll hear from the appellant. May it please the court, my name is Jason Yoder and I am here today representing Mr. Derek Stokes. He is the appellant in this uh, case. There are uh, essentially three images at issue in this case. Each image became the basis for the prosecution of two charges. One charge of disseminating an obscenity and a second charge of disclosing a private image. As a result of these charges, Mr. Stokes was ultimately sentenced to 11 to 15 years in prison with his earliest release date now as 2032. There are two main issues uh, before this court uh, with the briefs and the motion for appropriate relief that's been filed in this case. The first main issue is whether the trial court erred in failing to dismiss uh, the charges of disseminating an obscenity. And the second issue before this court is whether North Carolina's statute that um, criminalizes the disclosure of a private private image is facially unconstitutional and overbroad in violation of the First Amendment to the United States and Constitution. And Mr. Yoder, I have some procedural. This comes to us in a, I would say, a different procedural status, and I have some questions about that initially. Um, any constitutionality of the statute was not raised below. Is that correct? That is correct, Your Honor. And under longstanding appellate law in North Carolina, constitutional arguments that are not raised below are waived on appeal. Is that not also correct? They are waived on direct appeal, Your Honor. That is correct. And you are arguing that you can file properly file an MAR in this appeal to raise that and therefore circumvent the long-standing rule. Is that correct? Well, Your Honor, I, I don't believe it's circumventing um, the appellate rules. There is an appellate brief uh, in this issue, and there is also a motion for appropriate relief. It's an entirely separate vehicle designed by statute by the General Assembly. And they have you attempting to incorporate your MAR in your brief, have you not? Your Honor, I think that was um, a point of confusion with Mr. Whelan. I am not incorporating the motion for appropriate relief into the brief. The brief merely referenced and notified the court that a motion for appropriate relief had been filed in this case. In the same sense that um, if, if, I, if there was an error here, it's not through incorporation, but it's through trying to notify the court to make sure they were aware a motion had been filed contemporaneously in the same case. And um, I don't believe that the one paragraph referencing the fact that an MAR was filed um, is the same thing as attempting to incorporate the MAR into the brief. For example, you don't, you know, it, it, sometimes in the uh, grounds for appellate review in our briefs where we don't have the, you know, where maybe there's a, a, a defect in the notice of appeal and, and counsel says, oh, by the way, we filed a cert petition in case you find our notice of appeal defective. And I always do that Analogies in all of my cases. That, I put that in the grounds for relief. And I, and I did that in this case, um, although it was unnecessary, but it's, if anything, it's surplusage in my opinion. Um, it's not an attempt to evade the word limit or anything else, because this issue could not be raised on direct appeal, because it was not raised below. Now, under 15A 1418, Mr. Stokes could only file this motion for appropriate relief now in the Court of Appeals, because he has a direct appeal pending. 
And because this MAR does not involve any issues of fact, it's kind of the rare MAR that this court can resolve directly on the merits um, of the MAR. Does, it, does this raise broader concerns, though, that every time somebody waves the Constitution issue below, it just set, it's just an automatic vehicle for us to, to raise it here, or, or to be raised before us here? Well, um, in most cases, there, there, uh, there may be issues of in, you know, invited error or um, other kinds of issues that would make it so the MAR fact-finding issues would prohibit and MAR from being filed in this court. But as we saw from several of the attachments to your reply, which I'm gonna talk about in a minute, to the MAR, you've made a history of doing that, have you not, sir? Well, I only cited my own cases. That's what I but, mean, you've but, made a history of doing that, haven't you? Well, I've done it in at least uh, two cases. Um, other than this one. Other than this one. Because you've attached two cases other than this one to your reply. Which brings me to my question about your reply. Rule 37 doesn't allow you to file a reply, does it? To well, their response to the MAR? I know your argument is that it doesn't say I can't, so therefore I can. Yes. But there's no support in the rules for that, is there? Um, there's no prohibition on filing an MAR um, or, or a reply or responsive MAR. Well, but according to you, you could have filed, according to you and your logic, you could, people could continue to file replies in any motion back and forth, isn't it? It's, you're not limiting this to an MAR. Well, I, I'm, I'm not limiting it uh, to an MAR necessarily, um, but I thought given the importance of the issues raised in Mr. Whalen's um, response to the MAR, um, some of those things warranted a reply because in our opinion, they're just not a correct statement of the law and that they are an overly cramped reading of the MAR statute that would violate the intent of that statute um, and the purpose of the General Assembly. MARs are governed by the General Assembly, not by the rules of appellate procedure. And the grounds that you can raise in an MAR are set forth in the MAR statute. They're very specific and they're limited to specific types of instances. Most claims that are on appeal could not be raised as an MAR because they would fail um, to satisfy the grounds for those kinds of uh, motions. This court has been entertaining MARs um, for as long as the MAR statute has been enacted. And even in one case, they addressed an MAR on the facial constitutionality of a statute under the First Amendment. And I believe that's cited in my uh, briefing on this matter. And really all we're asking this court to do is do what it has done in the past. I understand this court might be concerned that there's an issue of floodgates, but appellate practitioners have been able to file MARs in this court um, for decades. And very few MARs have ever been filed in this court. Um, so this case will not change the outcome, um, and there won't be a flood of MARs that are produced by this court addressing the merits of the MAR. Well, let's talk about the merits of your MAR. Could I hear your argument as to why your client has a constitutional right to take a video of he and his, at that time, significant other engaged in sexual activity, and, and it was consensual at the time of the video. And then when they break up, he has a constitutional right to then be able to disseminate that to her employer and to other people in an attempt without her consent, with, without, in, in an attempt to harm her. What constitutional right does he have to do that? Well, first of all, what it sounds like you're doing is turning Mr. Stokes's um, facial constitutionality claim into an applied claim. Um, what we're not arguing is that this is an applied challenge under the First Amendment. This is a facial challenge to the, to the constitutionality of that statute. And under a facial challenge, the conduct of the defendant is irrelevant. Um, the only question is whether the statute 
read by itself is, would satisfy either strict scrutiny or the, or the overbreadth doctrine. That's why the MAR has no facts about the case, because the facts are actually irrelevant when you're doing a facial challenge to a statute. So what you're, I mean, what you're saying is revenge porn is protected speech, period. Well, what we're saying is period. that this statute is, is both not narrowly tailored and it's also um, not, it's overbroad. There is possibly a statute on the disclosure of a private image that could be drafted, but this statute fails several of the tests. So walk, walk us through the test then, Counselor, since, you know, your, your logic on it, um, I'm not seeing. So walk us through your analysis on it. Okay. Um, so there's a multi-part test, and if you look at the um, outline of the MAR test, it, or the MAR that I filed, it really walks you through the steps that a court has to take to um, analyze whether a statute fails uh, strict scrutiny or overbreadth under the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. That methodology is almost directly taken from the case Bishop, the North Carolina's cyberbullying statute that was struck down as facially unconstitutional by our North Carolina Supreme Court. The first step is to determine if the statute restricts speech. And I don't think there's actually a disagreement between Mr. Whalen and I at this point as to whether it does restrict speech. Um, the second question is whether um, it restricts protected speech. In other words, does it go beyond um, the traditionally unprotected categories, such as um, true threats um, and obscenity? And because the statute here doesn't incorporate any of those tests that the United States Supreme Court has um, adopted, it does go beyond that. In fact, the sole purpose of this statute is to go beyond obscenity and to capture other kinds of, of, of images. Um, the third step is to determine if a statute is content-based uh, or content-neutral. And this is the first point of disagreement between Mr. Whalen and I. He says that this is a content-neutral statute, and we argue that this is a, a content-based um, statute um, subject to strict scrutiny. And I think the answer to that question is resolved by the North Carolina Supreme Court's opinion in Bishop. Um, because like the statute in this case, in Bishop, that statute also prohibited the disclosure of private sexual information about an individual. Um, certain parts of that cyberbullying statute are almost identical um, to the um, disclosure of a private image statute that's at issue in this case. Um, and if you determine that uh, the statute is content-based, which is what we believe it is, and almost every court agrees with that, with the exception of one in Illinois that he cites multiple times in his briefs, um, then you have to apply either the strict scrutiny test or the overbreadth test. These are two tests that the United States Supreme Court uses to analyze um, the constitutionality of a statute when it's undergoing a First Amendment challenge. And there are two parts to strict scrutiny. One, it has to be a compelling state interest, not just any state interest, but it has to be a compelling one. And the second is that it has to be um, narrowly tailored. It has to be sort of like the tightest fit to um, address the, the evil that the General Assembly is intending to prohibit or criminalize. But doesn't, doesn't the statute do that in this case by including the additional element um, that, it, that the, the dissemination has to be for a specific purpose, including you know, financial harm, that kind of thing. Does, doesn't that create a tailoring of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the statute to the harm that it's intended to prevent? Well, the, one, one aspect about the harm is that it actually doesn't have a, a component in it, the statute, that the victim is actually, in fact, harmed. Um, it's just, it just has only the um, element of the intent to harm. And in Bishop, one of the issues that the North Carolina Supreme Court found to be uh, defective in the cyberbullying statute was that it didn't actually require the victim to actually be harmed. And that was one of the grounds that it was struck down on. Um, because if you're going to craft a statute intended to prevent harm, generally you have to have an actual harm. 
And the absence of that element was one of the things that um, the North Carolina Supreme Court found to fail the narrow tailoring at component of strict scrutiny. Um, there are mens reas, actually numerous mens reas, in this um, statute, but there were also mens reas in the cyberbullying statute, and those did not rescue the statute uh, from a constitutional challenge because um, they found that those were just insufficient. And our argument is here that those mens reas, <coughs> multiple mens reas, are insufficient to rescue this particular statute from uh, constitutional infirmity. One, because it doesn't require actual harm to the victim, but the second is it's under-inclusive, the mens rea. It actually doesn't stop the disclosure of private images for other purposes. Um, it doesn't stop the disclosure of this kind of material for financial gain, for titillation, um, or anything else. It, it only restricts it to those specific mens reas, and that is under-inclusive, and under-inclusivity is also often a sign that a statute is not narrowly tailored, because it fails to actually address uh, the larger societal issue that, that's at play um, in, in the, the issue that the General Assembly was attempting to address. So one, so that, that Judge Gore, that was sort of the steps that you go through to do a First Amendment analysis of a statute for facial constitutionality. Um, we also believe that the way the statute is written, it incorporates um, drawings, paintings, artificial intelligence generated material, and as Mr. Whalen conceded, deep fakes, which are not real or based on reality, but um, might be defamatory, but wouldn't be, uh, in fact, a true image of a person. Uh, and so these, these areas are where the statute is overbroad. And overbreadth, I think, is very close to the question of narrow tailoring in terms of how a statute uh, is drafted. And I think if you're looking to, to the United States Supreme Court, well, the first case you should look for for guidance is Bishop, because I think the analysis there controls a lot of aspects of this case, and obviously that's controlling First Amendment jurisprudence here in North Carolina. But I also think some of the United States Supreme Court cases are very compelling, in particular um, the Stevens case, which involves animal crush videos. These are videos of, of animals being um, compacted or, or, or killed, um, and the United States Supreme Court addressed that and found it to be unconstitutional under the overbreadth doctrine. Now, one thing that Mr. Whalen has argued is that this statute should be subject to intermediate scrutiny or a lesser degree of analysis because it's private speech, but I think the United States Supreme Court cases make clear that there's no distinction between political speech and private speech. And in fact, most of what we do as humans is purely private speech. Um, very few of us say anything, you know, over time that warrants, it has political importance. So um, it's our contention, there's never been a case at the United States Supreme Court level that has analyzed any type of statute like this under a lesser standard of scrutiny. And the fact that it's private speech does not do anything uh, to change the analysis um, in this case. Does that address your question, Judge Gore? Are there any, any other questions about the uh, motion for appropriate relief uh, before I turn to the, um, the sufficiency issue in this case? Proceed as you'd like. Okay. Um, the other main issue, which is in the, the brief, is um, whether the state actually proved that there was the dissemination of an obscene image. Um, there were three images in this case um, two charges are based on State's Exhibit 1, which I hope you will look at. There is no um, sexual conduct in those images that is plainly obvious from looking at them. There's no nudity in those images. At best, these are implied nudes or uh, 
photo of a person unclothed from the upper chest higher. So, but, but let's, I mean, let's put the argument in, in the proper context. The issue is not really whether the state proved obscenity. The, the issue is whether there was sufficient evidence on which those charges could be submitted to the jury, which is, uh, you know, uh, the one area where we, we sort of weigh the evidence in the state's favor, um, you know, tie goes to the state on, on that. Why, why is there not at least some evidence that would support submitting these charges to the jury where, with the combination of both, you know, the, the, the still image and the testimony regarding the still image? How is that not sufficient evidence to at least submit the charge to the jury? Well, our, our, our generally in North Carolina, the sufficiency of the evidence is judged in terms of the indictment itself. And at least for the two indictments, uh, 20 CRS 310 and 20 CRS 311, the indictment alleged specifically that it was just an image. And Mr. Uh, Stokes was only charged with disseminating those images that are shown in Exhibit 1. He was never charged with disseminating a video. They could have charged him with that. They didn't. Explain, and, and, and that's an interesting piece of your argument. Explain to me how a video is not an image. Well, I think in the common way that an average person speaks English, nobody would say I'm going to the movies to see an image. They would say I'm going to see a movie. Well, isn't that what movie is, a moving image movie? Well, a movie is a series of images um, in a video format. So I guess, Counsel, on Judge Hampson's question, when there's competing facts or competing contentions with facts in the record, who, who is the proper evaluator of that? Well, I don't believe there is a conflict at all in the case here. Well, I'm saying if there is. You're saying that there was a video and not an image. State saying video is an image. So I think there is an argument. And so who is the, the evaluator of that when there's competing facts cutting both ways? Well, What does when, our case law say about that? Well, when there's a factual dispute, then if there's facts on both sides of the, the record, then generally, um, this court would defer uh, to the jury finding. And so it went to the jury, correct? It did go to the jury. But the crucial aspect here is the jury was never actually shown the video. So the jury could only return an obscenity charge based on the image. And the images alone in this case cannot, under any conceivable um, imagination, be considered obscene. And there was, there was testimony as well, correct? There was vague testimony about the videos, but there was no testimony as to how long the videos were, how many videos there were. It, I think that the record shows that there were multiple videos. Um, we don't know which videos were shown. We don't know what the content of those videos were necessarily. But at best, the videos only showed that there was amateur pornography, which is itself protected in North Carolina. But and everywhere in the United States. Your argument in your brief is not is that the court erred in sending it to the jury. That's your argument. That's correct. That's the And so the test then is whether there's evidence in the light most favorable to the state to send it to the jury. Isn't that correct? That is correct. Um, and under the evidence here, we believe that it's totally insufficient to go to the jury. Because the evidence in the light most favorable to the state only showed that the videos contained amateur pornography. In an absence of those videos being shown <coughs> to the jury, um, there is no way for this court to do its own legally required constitutional duty to evaluate the evidence in this case. The United States Supreme Court cases make it clear that this court has an extra duty in these kinds of cases. It's not like a normal sufficiency of the evidence case because you have a, a legal duty to make an independent First Amendment evaluation of the materials themselves to determine if they're actually uh, protected or not. And in this case, the state has prevented you from doing that. Uh, they never submitted the videos into evidence, which could have shown that these were not just amateur pornography. They were actually obscenities um, restricted under Miller. 
So this case is not like your average um, sufficiency of the evidence case, because it actually has a component to it that's constitutional. And that's normally not present in an average sufficiency case. And just, just remind me for clarification, was the, the constitutional piece raised as part of the motions to dismiss in this case? Well, Your Honor, we don't believe it has to be because the constitutionality of the is incorporated directly into the statute itself. So when you're addressing the sufficiency of the evidence, um, our statute is a duplicate of the constitutional contours. So um, you have to determine whether it's constitutional just to determine whether the evidence is sufficient under the elements of the statute. Now, if you read the statute itself, you'll see it very closely, well, it identically tracks uh, the Miller test. So you basically have to apply the constitutional standard when evaluating the sufficiency uh, of the evidence in this case. And that's what our courts have done. They originally did that after the Miller test, and they only started to deviate from that um, in the last few years. And I traced some of the history of that error um, in, in the briefing. But I can see now that I only have four minutes left of my reply, um, so I'm gonna reserve my time unless there's any more questions from the court today. Okay. We'll hear from the state. Good morning, your honors. May it please the court. My name is James Whalen, and I represent the state. Stokes challenges the state's ability to protect victims from revenge porn. Uh, and as the facts in this case demonstrate, the harms that revenge porn poses are severe. BL broke up, BL the victim in this case, broke up with Stokes when he became violent and controlling. And then he tried to blackmail her back into that relationship by threatening to disclose a video that he had recorded of them engaged in vaginal and oral sex. When that did not work, he followed through on that threat and he sent that video to her employer, first through a direct Facebook message and then uh, by pu publicly posting the video on her employer's public Facebook page. As if that were not enough, he then extracted graphic images of BL performing fellatio from that video and using nearly a dozen phony social media profiles, plastered those images all over the internet. He sent them to her mother, <coughs> her sister, to her friends, he published them alongside her home address, causing strange men to visit her home at night seeking sex. One such post got over 800 likes on Facebook, meaning that over 800 individuals saw a close-up graphic image of BL performing fellatio. These images plagued her life, causing her to quit her job and leave her home. What Stokes did in this case is abhorrent, and under North Carolina law is illegal. First, because he shared the images without BL's consent, and secondly, because the video and still images taken therefrom are so graphic that, the, that a jury found them to be obscene. Stokes now challenges his convictions, both on appeal and through this uh, motion for appropriate relief. But in order for this court to rule for Mr. Stokes, it would have to take three unprecedented steps. First, Stokes asks you to find, for the very first time, that a criminal defendant can always raise waived constitutional issues on appeal simply by filing an MAR. Second, concerning the substance of his MAR, Stokes asks you to become the first court in the country to hold that the First Amendment prevents the state from protecting privacy by outlawing revenge porn. And third, concerning his obscenity convictions, Stokes asks this court to reverse its own precedent and hold that in order to sustain an obscenity conviction, the state has to introduce the, the obscene material itself into evidence in its entirety. This court need not take any of those extreme steps. This case can be resolved through a straightforward application of statute, constitutional doctrine, and this court's own precedent. Moving to the sufficiency of the evidence on, on the obscenity charge, how, how would a, a, a trial court be able to even evaluate whether something arises to the level of obscenity, it's not protected speech under the Constitution, um, without having the opportunity to actually review it. Yes, Your Honor, they do that the way you do that in any other case. They consider all of the evidence, including both direct and circumstantial evidence. And so what was the evidence in this case that the, the image 
or movie, depending on how you want to frame it, um, rose to the level of not just offensive, not just pornographic, but obscenity. What was what was the specific evidence in this case that takes it over that over the over the line here? Yes, John. There are two sources of, sources of evidence. First, there is testimony from three different witnesses who viewed the vi the video. Um, the that's not in incredible detail, but it does describe what the video is. And the video is a sex video of vaginal and oral sex. And then, unlike in this court's previous cases, uh, they, the jury actually got to see several frames from the video. Uh, these are not just discrete portions of like a two-hour length feature film that happened to be a sex scene. This is representative snapshots of the video that are up close and graphic that are themselves sufficient evidence of their own obscenity. And that's what both this court and our U.S. Supreme Court <coughs> has repeatedly held, that uh, hardcore porn speaks for itself. It is up close. It leaves little to the imagination. That's exactly what the images in this case do. Uh, those are the still images. That's also what the video is as a whole. And it's important that this court is faithful to that precedent. Uh, in this case, uh, the, the video, it's not clear at all in the record why the video was not introduced by the state. Uh, but in other cases, in this case, in, in this court's precedent, uh, the crime is disclosing an obscenity to a minor. And oftentimes what happens in these cases is that the minor at some point later reports that this has happened, but the minor's you know, five or six years old. He or she has no idea what it is that they've seen, and they can just sort of basically describe what happened in the video, and then the state has to come up with other evidence to prove that this occurred. Uh, if if the state is required to introduce the entire obscene work into evidence in every case, that would effectively allow the defendants to destroy the evidence ahead of time and then avoid any kind of conviction. Uh, that's exactly what uh, appeared to have happened in one, a couple of these other precedents, is that the, uh, when, the, when law enforcement came to search, the, I think it was a stepfather uh, and the stepdaughter, and that's the, the stepfather showed a pornographic video to the stepdaughter. And by the time that law enforcement searched his home, uh, there were no more DVDs in the home, but they found other DVDs in a storage unit somewhere else. Uh, and effectively, they had to show more of these videos to the child in order to establish for the jury what these videos were like. Uh, in those cases, that was sufficient evidence based on a testimony, and then videos that were sort of like the video at issue in that case. Here, the jury got to hear testimony and see actual still shots from the video that were themselves uh, obviously up close, graphic, left little to the imagination, uh, were themselves sufficient evidence that a jury could determine based on community standards that they were patently offensive and that the other elements of obscenity. Was, it, was there evidence connecting that the same images or videos that were used uh, to support the obscenity charges themselves, the specific obscenity charge um, were in fact, was in fact the same video as the snippets that were shown? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, BL testified exactly that, to that fact, and I am happy to give the court the transcript page, which is also cited in the brief. Uh, on transcript pages 222, 314, and 315, BL testifies that those still images came from the video. And I understand there is some confusion, I guess, about whether there was a video or multiple videos. It seems pretty clear from the transcripts that everyone is referring to a video. Uh, occasionally, there's the, that a witness or, a, or an attorney uses the plural videos. But in fact, on the same page that Stokes cites in his reply brief, arguing that there are multiple videos, uh, BL testifies then about two lines later that there is a video. And so if there's any confusion as to that matter, that was for the jury to decide. And viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to the state, there is one video. BL testified that all of the images in this case come from the video. Uh, there's no question that this all arose uh, in a bathroom in Maryland. And so uh, th there should be no confusion there for this court as to whether there is one video or multiple videos. But I guess the, the question that raises, though, and it's, it's, it's raised, raised in the brief, is, is was there a chance that the jury was confused as to which depiction, <coughs> which uh, incident, you know, uh, which posting uh, related to which charge, to specific charges? Was, was there a, a risk of confusion or, or put another way, was there a, a, a variance <laughs> between the pleading and the proof here? 
No variance, Your Honor. And no, I don't think there was a risk of confusion. The, the transcript is pretty clear that the first two charges are about what Stokes sent to BL's employer, first as a direct Facebook message, and then by posting it to the employer's public Facebook account. That's what the indictment alleges. That's what was discussed at trial. Uh, so the question for the jury was, what was that that he sent? Was it a, uh, a picture with a play symbol that has a link but was only a still image? Or was it a video? And all of the evidence at trial was that it was a video. The, uh, the woman who received it at the employer, the, the HR person who received the video, testified that it was a video link. Uh, it has a play symbol over it, which is commonly, um, commonly understood to refer to a video. Uh, everyone referred to it as the video. In fact, again, this is on uh, page 215 and 216, BL, looking at the initial frame, said this is the video. So there was plenty of evidence for the jury to say that what was sent was a video. And just to be clear, the reason that Exhibit 1, which uh, Stokes refers to, uh, the reason that that's a still shot is because that is what the employer printed onto paper and gave to BL when she went to her employer to ask for evidence. So she went to the detective to report the crime, and the detective asked her to obtain some evidence that this has occurred, and she went to her employer, and the employer printed it out for her. And when you print a video, uh, you don't get a video, you get a still <coughs> image with a play symbol over top of it from Facebook. And so that's, the, the conviction is not based on Exhibit 1. The conviction is based on the video. Exhibit 1 was introduced to prove that Stokes sent the video uh, twice to uh, BL's employer. <coughs> and then just to clarify for the court, the third conviction is based on uh, any of the other images that BL posted to Facebook. And so those are all actual still frames. Uh, they are introduced into evidence. The jury got to see those in the entirety. So those are... Uh, that the third conviction is not based on the video. There's, the third conviction is based on uh, screenshots from the video that were independently posted by Stokes. I'd like to emphasize a couple of things regarding the MAR, uh, which this court has already asked uh, questions about uh, from my friend. The, the argument he has raised is not narrow. It is broad. And uh, he, he attempts now to argue that it would be sort of a limited thing. It would not cause an avalanche. But as this court is well aware, virtually every issue in a criminal trial has constitutional underpinnings. And the MAR statute is written in such a way that any constitutional issue can be raised after 10 days. Uh, so that, that portion of the statute is simply referring to the timeliness of the MAR. And then 1418 is simply referring to where the MAR is filed. But the, the statute that is relevant to this court is statute 15A-1419. Uh, That's the statute that regulates when an MAR is procedurally proper. Stokes has not cited any case that discusses that statute. The cases that he cites in his reply uh, are referring to uh, just places <coughs> where this court or our Supreme Court have looked at an MAR uh, in, during the course of uh, an appeal, but they have not grappled with 15A-1419. And in fact, uh, I, will, um, I will note that in the lead case he cites, the only case from North Carolina Supreme Court that he cites to argue that he's allowed to file this MAR, State v. Garcelle, actually the court, the, our Supreme Court in that case twice declined to consider a constitutional issue that was raised in an MAR because it was not preserved at trial. So that case actually cuts the other way. It rules in the opposite way that Stokes has asked this court to rule in this case. Stokes has asked this court to say that any time he waives or any criminal defendant does not raise an issue at trial, if that issue has any constitutional underpinnings, he can file an MAR, he can avoid any kind of preservation analysis, he can avoid any kind of plain error analysis, he can go straight to the merits. Uh, that is not how that statute's been interpreted by any court, and in fact, our Supreme Court, in interpreting the actual statute that's at issue in this case, 15A, uh, 1419A3, this is State v. Price, which the state has cited, in our brief, uh, there the Supreme Court is actually interpreting the statute at issue in this case. And the court says that the purpose is not to raise, uh, raise waived issues. The purpose is not to upend the orderly briefing on appeal. The purpose is to raise new arguments that were not available to the appellant in his initial appeal. Uh, new arguments can be based on new evidence. It can be based on new decisions from a higher court. It could be based on a new statute. There are lots of ways that an argument might not be available to a, a defendant early on. 
but uh, this sort of thing where there is a waived argument and rather than grapple with the preservation <coughs> issues in his opening brief, which he had an adequate opportunity to do, he instead raised it in MAR. Uh, that is not the way the MAR statute has been interpreted and it would open this court up to an avalanche of new cases. Well, how, if it had been waived below, how could he have properly raised it in his brief? Your Honor, the proper way, which defendants do all the time, is to raise it in his appellant brief, acknowledge that it was waived below, and then request this court invoke Rule 2 of the Rules of Appellate Procedure and suspend the rules of preservation in order to reach the issue. That is a common thing that defendants request. It is not <coughs> commonplace for this court to grant that relief. Uh, but in this sort of case, certainly the state is not conceding anything, but in this sort of case where there is a statute that's never been interpreted before, that uh, is a facial constitutional challenge where the defendant is alleging that he's being imprisoned for, for conduct that was protected by the Constitution, I think he would have had an argument that Rule 2 was proper. States certainly would have argued against it and argued the other side. But the fact that we have a procedural defense to his argument does not render his opportunity inadequate. He had an adequate opportunity to do what every other criminal defendant does, raise the argument, acknowledge it was waived, and grapple with the Rule 2 and the preservation rules that this court uses to uh, manage its, its docket. It's important to note, I think, that, that preservation is not a jurisdictional requirement for this court. It's not like this court would be unable to reach the issue. That would be an issue for this court to resolve based on weighing all the factors and determining whether this was the sort of case that Rule 2 was proper. Uh, also, I'll say importantly, because of the way Stokes has now brought this issue before the court, Rule 2 is no longer on the table. Rule 2 allows this court to suspend the rules of appellate procedure. It does not allow this court to suspend the statute. And so by bringing this as an MAR instead of a, uh, a, a um, criminal appellant, a, a normal appellee or appellant um, argument, uh, he's actually made it more difficult for this court to reach the merits of his argument. Counsel, address um, the discussion that counsel brought up about the harm um, argument where obviously he's alleging the statute doesn't, you know, uh, enumerate or expand on the harm issue. Address that for me. Yes, Your Honor. There's a critical difference between the harm in this case and the harm of cyberbullying in Bishop. Uh, Bishop was reviewing a cyberbullying statute that uh, the, the core purpose was to protect children from being bullied. But if a child never sees the post, the child has not been bullied, and therefore that element was made it not narrowly tailored. In this case, the issue is privacy. I do not need to see a video of myself in order for my privacy to be violated. Actually, what matters is if other people see it. If any other person sees the video, then my privacy has been violated. And so just the act of posting it alone causes the exact harm that the state is trying to prevent. And I think that's accentuated in this case because he posted it to the internet. And we all know things posted to the internet are very difficult to get rid of. These images kept coming up, kept plaguing her life, Everyone in her life saw them. Complete strangers saw them. It took a long, long time uh, for those images to come down. And it's certainly possible that those images are still out there somewhere. And so the <laughs> fact that, uh, the, that, the tr that the, certainly in this case, if that had been an element, there was plenty of evidence to show that the harms that the state was trying to prevent had occurred. But even in the abstract, it's clear that this statute does contemplate that the, that the uh, victim has been harmed because simply posting the image does harm the victim. Is it, uh, but under the statute, is it simply the posting of the image or is it the posting of an image to another person? So, the, I mean, is there not the required element that, that these are actually um, <clears throat> disclosed? Uh, well, actually, never mind. Take it back. Uh, Your Honor, I, I would agree with the court's characterization. I think the, the, the word used in the statute is disclose. Right. Uh, and I think it, certainly if this court were concerned about Bishop, the simplest way to interpret the statute to be constitutional, which uh, is, is required, um, is, or, or if it's possible to interpret the statute to be constitutional, this court should do so. Uh, disclose, a, a, a rational interpretation of the word disclose would be disclose it to another person. And so if this... Um, frankly, I don't think it would be possible to convict someone of this crime unless someone else had seen the, uh, the, uh, the image. If someone posts it and no one ever, if someone, it's sort of like if you uh, chop down a tree in the woods and nobody's there to hear it. So if someone posts this, uh, an image and nobody sees it, it's not clear to me how that person would ever be reported to law enforcement, how law enforcement would ever bring charges, how 
uh, a prosecution would ever bring a prosecution if nobody in the world has ever seen the image. But even leaving that aside, just on a facial reading of the statute, the word disclosed to me uh, reads that this is uh, something that has been shared with other people. So I think that that uh, is resolved. There is one other important distinction that I'd like to bring up when it comes to Bishop, um, because uh, Stokes has asked this court to apply an outdated U.S. Supreme Court precedent to determine whether or not this statute is, uh, regulates content in the way to receive strict scrutiny. And that's an important point because there's not a lot to go on in some of these other cases to analyze this, but there is a more up-to-date U.S. Supreme Court precedent that changes the rules. <coughs> Bishop decided in 2016 at the time was faithfully applying U.S. Supreme Court precedent. It applied Reed v. Town of Gilbert. Reed v. Town of Gilbert said that the test for uh, analyzing whether or not something is content-based and receives strict scrutiny is a purely textualist test. You look only at the face of the statute. If the statute references the content of the speech at all, it immediately gets strict scrutiny. That's the test that Stokes has asked this court to apply in this case. But last year, in a City of Austin v. Reagan National Advertising, LLC, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court said that is not the case. The Supreme Court returned to what the U.S. Supreme Court had done for a long, long time and said that the test is a purpose test, that there are statutes that regulate the content of speech in some way, but do so on purely neutral lines and do not do so in a way that suppresses the message being shared. And so in that case, there were billboards. These were uh, the, the statute regulated whether or not the billboard referred to an on-site or an off-site location. So if you have a big sign that says, this is McDonald's, that was allowed. If you had a big sign that said, McDonald's coming up in five miles, that is not allowed. That statute was obviously content-based. The only way to know whether or not the billboard was regulated by the statute was to read the billboard and tell what it was referring to. But the Supreme Court said that that's not enough to get strict scrutiny, that that was a neutral line because it, had, it wasn't there to suppress any particular message. It was there to, uh, to serve the legitimate goal of avoiding distraction. That, uh, so that people weren't trying to follow these signs to get to an off-site off location. That's the same thing that's at issue in this case. The, the purpose of the statute is to protect privacy. Three of the elements of the, of the crime have nothing to do with the content of speech at all. They have to do with the mens rea and the defendant's knowledge <coughs> that uh, the image was <coughs> private and that, his, that he failed to get consent. Those have nothing to do with content of speech. The other two elements only regulate the content of speech in order to serve the legitimate goal of, of uh, protecting privacy. The reason that the image has to contain sexual conduct <coughs> or nudity is because the legislature determined that those are the most intimate images. And so if you're trying to protect the most intimate privacy, that's a neutral line, a neutral way to analyze that. Uh, the same with the requirement that the individual be identifiable either from the image itself or for other, from other information around the image. Again, it would not be a statute that protects privacy if it outlawed uh, obscured faces because a person's privacy is not violated if nobody knows that they are the ones in the video or in the image. And so those are, those are uh, you know, colloquial, colloquially speaking, content-based lines, but those content-based lines are neutral. And that's exactly what uh, our Supreme Court has instructed the, the court to do in an out analyzing these sorts of things. And so to the extent that uh, this court would like to look for precedent and should not look to state the bishop for that proposition because State v. Bishop was applying out-of-date uh, U.S. Supreme Court precedent. Again, at the time, it was the right, the right test, but now it is no longer the right test. If this court uh, does not have any more questions, uh, I, I'm happy to sit down. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honors. Your Honors, very briefly, I'd like to touch on um, the MAR statute, uh, the 15A1419 issue, because I can see this court is grappling with that uh, a little bit. Um, I believe the state's argument, if taken and held by this court, would also prevent a defendant from ever filing an MAR after a direct appeal had been completed. Um, the rule for the MAR applies both to MARs filed here and to MARs filed in the trial court. And that would simply discourage defendants from ever appealing at all. Because if the defendant had never appealed in this case, then very clearly under the MAR statute, he would have been able to erase this 
particular claim as an MAR. And we believe he could still raise this claim as an MAR after this appeal is completed, if he would like. Um, what we're just simply asking this court to do is because of the straightforward <coughs> nature of the claim is to address this novel statute, which has only been on the books for a couple of years here, as a matter of impression directly now, rather than addressing it as a petition for writ of certiorari if he files an MAR in the trial court and it is ultimately denied. So this case would return to this court um, if you were to dismiss the MAR now, probably. Um, but I also think the most expansive reading of his interpretation of that statute is incredibly dangerous. It suggests that if an issue is not preserved in the trial court, it can never be raised uh, in an MAR in the future. Um, but that's clearly not what the statute says. The MAR statute was drafted to encompass lots of different kinds of errors not just ineffective assistance of counsel claims and not just claims of changes in the law. Um, so if this court were to dismiss the MAR, I do believe it would just be revived at the trial court level. Um, and so we would ask you to address the merits of it now. And in fact, under the statute 15A1418, um, it says that this court has to resolve uh, the MAR uh, during the dependency of the appeal. So we believe this is the most appropriate venue um, for that analysis. So, um, and as to the, the still images, there was some discussion previously about still images and how some still, still images could possibly be used to, uh, at, for the sufficiency of the evidence. And um, Mr. Whalen suggested some of them showed vaginal sex. It's my recollection that none of the images, still images, actually show what one would consider a, a graphic depiction of vaginal sex. That was never shown to the jury. There are certainly some still images um, that are shown for purposes of 404B. A substantial portion of the trial, if you've read the transcript, was whether Mr. Stokes actually sent these um, still images at all. And um, almost all that evidence was not entered to prove the obscenity. Um, it was only entered for 404B purposes to prove the identity. So we believe that it would be inappropriate to use evidence that had been submitted for 404B purposes uh, for sufficiency of the evidence, um, because that evidence was not never entered for those purposes. Um, if there are no more questions from the court, we would just ask that you uh, vacate uh, the convictions for Mr. Stokes or remand this for a new trial. Thank you, counsel, for good arguments. Thank you, Your Honor.